Good morning again. I would invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 20. I'd like to start with a word of prayer, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this time. Just to open your word, unpack your word, to see what it says, and then see how we can apply this to our own hearts and minds. Father, I pray that it would it would change us. We know that you've promised that your word does not return void, and it accomplishes what you desire. So I pray that it would work in our hearts and our minds and our lives today, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been looking at faith. That's the, the topic. The focus has been genuine, true, genuine faith, examining our own heart to see if we are uh, genuine believers, if we have genuine faith, and we have to evaluate that. And we've seen, in looking at our faith, we started looking uh, first with Ruth, and Ruth is a, a wonderful example. At the very core of who she was, her faith was seen. Even though she was young and eager faith, she, her whole life was given over to following God. And the only connection to the true and living God that she had was this godly family that God brought into her life. And she would not detach herself from that family. And she rejected the world. In fact, that's what we saw. So we saw three marks of, or three, yeah, marks of genuine faith in her life. Genuine faith then is uh, a rejection uh, of an old sinful way of life. That's what Ruth did. She rejected her culture, rejected the old lifestyle, rejected her people, even her own family, rejected that sinful life and followed poor little Naomi into a land that she did not know. That's a mark of genuine faith. Number two, genuine faith is marked by a commitment, a commitment to the pursuit, pursuing the things of God. It it rejects certain things, but it also pursues God himself, the person following after God. And these are things that we looked at uh, last fall, a love for God, a love for God's people, love for God's church, a love for God's word, pursuing of the things of God. And again, Ruth is a, a wonderful example of that. It's a very active thing in her life. It wasn't a passive kind of faith. That's the kind of faith we be to be looking for. Number three, it was marked by genuine faith is marked by <laughs> endurance. And that was that was Ruth's life that she endured. It's a faith that overcomes, a faith that withstands trials. And that marks it out as being a supernatural kind of faith. A faith that is from God is going to overcome. Peter called it a living faith. It's not going to just walk away. And that makes it different from the world. True, believing, genuine, biblical faith is different from the, mar- uh, from the world. It's, it's given to us by God. The second person that we looked at was Lot, or I'm sorry, Lot's wife. Lot's wife. Now, she was a, a professing believer, if you would. She was attached to the, the uh, believing community, but when 
she got to safety, she disobeyed and she looked back. And in that one small little sin, we look at, oh, just so simple and small little sin. But her heart was exposed as being an unbelieving heart because her attachment was still to this world, still on Sodom. And so she looked back. And so Christ in the New Testament says, remember Lot's wife. And he set her out as an example. And so so we have on one side, Ruth with strong faith. Then we have Lot's wife who is professing and maybe seemed to have strong faith, but at the end, her faith was dead. It was a a faith of pretense, an unbelieving, dead faith. Now, this is where the confusion is. Because that can be, there's there's black and, and white, but we usually live in the middle. And it causes us to to ask the question, does God people... God's people doubt? Does God's people have a faith that wavers? Does God's people ever question? Does Satan ever come along and tempt us to despair? As the hymn writer would say. And then how do we know? How can we really have assurance? If we're examining ourselves, looking at our our own hearts, our for genuine faith, genuine believing biblical faith. And how, how can we know? How can we know? Because we know we're prone to wander. Right? We tend to, we tend to be like Lot's wife and, and look back. Is that a demonstration of unbelieving faith? Well, it can be a little confusing and we need to think through that. And I believe this is why this passage is so important. The reality is, folks, and we need to face this reality is that our faith is not perfect. The only one that had perfect faith was Christ Jesus himself. And he had perfect faith. He trusted in his heavenly father, even to the point of of death, the Bible said. And this passage, I believe, is going to help us to understand that where that dynamic is of of wavering faith is what I've called it. Wavering faith, or you might call it shaky faith. And it can be different, difficult to, to just look at our hearts and understand these things. So we have to dig a little deeper in Scripture, and I want us to do that in this passage. It, it can be difficult because of a couple of reasons. Number one, it's a heart issue. And the heart we, we read from Jeremiah 17 is deceitful and above all, uh, wicked above all things, who can understand it? It's, it's past knowing. We really can't even examine our own heart because it's so deceitful. Number two is because of the residual effect of sin. This devastation of sin on our heart is, is much greater than we think that it is. Even, even a new heart. We have a new heart. If you're a genuine, true believer, you've got a new heart. But you know what? You still have habits, ways of thinking, certain attitudes, scars on that heart. Maybe hard spots, a hardened heart, habits, sinful habits. Uh, I found my old baseball glove the other day. Now, I hadn't seen it in, in years, but I put my hand in that thing. And, and you know what? It's a perfect fit. 
It just, it just felt comfortable. Sliding that hand right into that glove. It's because I had used it so much. It had just conformed my, to my hand. When I put it in, it was just, it was just very, very comfortable. It was like it just fit me. That was a, that was a wonderful thing. The thing is, is we can slip back into habits of thinking, habits of sin, so quickly, so easily, so conveniently. It's kind of like a, a baby that's tottering, trying to walk, takes a few steps, maybe three or four steps, maybe even walks across the room and, and then falls. And then they realize it's much easier to just go back to crawling, Right? So they just crawl. They can get there faster. They just know how to do that. They practice that. They just go back to crawling. And folks, that's that's our tendency. But genuine faith, and here's our overarching principle. Genuine faith is at the core of who we are. And it will demonstrate, it will be seen in the direction of our life. Now, here's what I want to add to that. It's not a perfect faith. It doesn't, it changes the direction of our life. It's not perfection, but it is changing the direction of our life. Now, concerning this passage, if there's one hero in Scripture, it's Christ, right? From Genesis to Revelation, he was predicted, he was, uh, it was prophesied that he was going to come. He is the pinnacle of the redemption of man. And even in Revelation, he's, from start to finish, it's Christ. The whole focus of Scripture is in Christ. But if there's a second person that's elevated in Scripture, not a Savior, just an example, that would be Abraham. From Genesis to Revelation, almost to Revelation, we see that he is an example. He's upheld in Scripture as a man of faith. In fact, in Romans, Paul calls him the father of our faith. That's, that's elevating him. Look at his example. In fact, we see in, we'll see in chapter 22, in a couple of chapters here, how strong Abraham's faith is. And that Abraham, in this, in that passage, we'll see, he's at the pinnacle of his faith. And we look at that and we can be discouraged thinking, man, how in the world can his faith be so strong? One of the things about heroes, though, is you never point out the weakness of a hero. Now, that's the hero. Never point out the weakness of the hero. But that's exactly what Scripture does in this passage. Points out, even magnifies the weakness here of Abraham. And what you see is a weak, wavering, shaky in fact, we would, we would even, just looking at it, it would be an unbelieving faith. No faith at all. But yet he's built up as the father of our faith. An example, in fact, he's magnified. And you think, how in the world? How, how do we see this? So as if we're looking at our own heart, examining our own heart, how, how, do, we, how do we tell? What, what do we think about this? Abraham's weak faith. What would God have us to learn from this story? What would God have Israel to learn from this story? That would have been the original audience. It's also written for us, obviously. But a couple of things, I think. Number one is faith is important. Number two is we have to be careful. We have to be careful concerning our faith. 
Because it's, it's so important in our life. And, and this passage pulls that out in our life. Faith. It's important because we all believe in something. You, you've got faith in something or someone. And it's, uh, it's just a, a way of making sense out of this world. We, we put our faith in that. Usually it has a religious source. Scripture or some other place. It has a religious source. But it's uh, an ideology, if you will, that, that, we, that we believe in. And it usually develops into a community. Like the American dream. We believe in the American dream. Or some dream that hasn't even been realized yet. And we all kind of come together. But, but usually what we put our faith in is our own self. That's usually what we put ourselves. We're, we're the judge of everything. We determine right from wrong. We, it's usually about us. And the thing is, is, whatever your faith is in, that's what your world revolves around. It's a belief system, whether it's adapted from your parents or culture, um, just some system of thought, some worldview. Even today, what you find is communities within Facebook, communities online that kind of define the people and they believe in these things. And even though they're not in the same room as these people, they have the same mentality. They, they buy into the same ideology. And the ancient peoples knew this. And they would just say, well, we worship this God. And it would re- their, their life would revolve around that God. They would have faith in that, that God. It's usually multiple gods. They would serve that God, sacrifice for that God, do whatever they could to pres- pre- appeal, appease that God. And it became a culture. And they understood that. They just said, we just buy into that. This region, this is the God that they worship. And it developed into some kind of, of lifestyle. And that's the way faith is seen in Scripture. The characteristics of genuine faith we've seen. But what are the characteristics? What are the characteristics of shaky faith? What are the characteristics of genuine faith? The faith is there. It's not a dead faith. It's genuine faith, but it's, it's wavering. It's shaky. It may appear, appear as unbelieving faith at, at some times. It's not perfect. I am so glad, folks, that this passage is in Scripture. Because these men that we elevate, Abraham and, and Moses and David and Daniel, we elevate them, and rightfully so. They had strong faith, but but what we also know that they were they were just men. They were just men, and I am so thankful for that. These stories are in Scripture of their weakness, because I know my weakness, and I know that ever before my eyes. Now I want us to see six elements here, just flowing through this passage, eighteen verses. And I want us to see Abraham's sin. You'll see this. Abraham's sin. And then God's intervention. And then Abraham's embarrassment. And then Abraham's rationalization or rationale. And then you see Abimelech, the king. Abimelech's reparation. And then Abraham's restoration. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Number one, let's look first. The passage is 
tells us Abraham's sin. Abraham's sin. And here's the principle. That wavering faith is a sin against God. Wavering faith is a sin against God. Look at verse 1. And Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev. That's the southern part of of where of, of Israel would be down close to the Egyptian border. And he settled in Kadesh and Shore. Shore would have been the 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 region, more of the region. Kadesh would have been uh, more of the city. And then from there he sojourned into Gar. Gar was about ten miles south of of um, uh, Gaza. It would have been a far piece for Abraham to, to go down to, to that. Uh, but this would have been a Philistine city. Uh, they were a coastal people that would have been close to the coast, down close to the Egyptian border, right on the border of, of Canaan and Egypt. And so Abraham moves. We're not told why he moved. We're not told that he... Um, he needed to move or anything. For example, a drought, he may move his cattle uh, for different reasons. Or maybe he was just touring the land because God told him, go, go throughout the land. See the land that I am inheriting, that you're, is your inheritance, that I'm willing, moving, uh, that I'm giving to you. So he moves from Oaks of Mamre, where God had visited him before moving into uh, Sodom and seeing Sodom, he moves from the Oaks of Mamre to to down to Gar. And it was a very public thing for him to do because Abraham has been blessed by God. It was just it wasn't just a, an easy thing. It wasn't just he and his wife. More likely, he brought uh, his cattle with him. He, he had multiple servants. He was blessed by the Lord to have sheep and, and oxen. He was blessed by the Lord. Even at one point, it says he even had his own army. That's a pretty major thing. But the problem is in verse 2. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Now that's, that's the problem. She is my sister. He, he lied. That's the sin. That's the problem. So, Abimelech, that's the king of Gar, sent and took her. Now you've got a real problem. So Abraham lied and therein uh, sinned against God, but now he's got complications for that lie. Lying is a sin. Now, here's what's happening. We need to understand this. Sin reveals what's going on in the heart. Right? Think through that, think that through a little bit. Sin, out, outward ex- is exposing what's what's going on in the heart. And what's going on in the heart is not trusting God. Wavering faith. Shaky faith. And shaky faith is exposed because of this sin. What we see is fear. Self-protection. And we all tend to gravitate toward our weakness. It's like putting on that baseball glove. It's just perfect fit. And this is a perfect fit for for Abraham. This is just what he does. And, and this is shocking. Abraham's sin. But the reality, folks, and, and what we need to take away from this passage is that we 
Even though we have genuine faith, Abraham is elevated for his faith, he still sinned. That's amazing to me. It's amazing because not that so much that we sin, but God is so gracious to keep us in the faith. The reality is that genuine faith is not beyond the reach of our fear. Genuine faith is not beyond the reach of our fear. It can reach in and grab us. And the reality is that that we're sinful and we're guilty before God. Our faith is still attached to this physical body. Now just think about that. Because we see. We see things. We hear things. And we react. Our our faith may be strong, but we see things. And that, that then causes us to fear And it just reminds me of the disciples in the boat going across the Sea of Galilee. The winds come up, storms come up. Jesus is asleep in the the back of the boat. And man, they get afraid. Jesus is right there. Now, my tendency to, to think through this, I would say, Jesus is right there. What's there to be afraid of? That's our tendency. That's what we, that's the way we kind of, we think. Oh, boy, if it was me, I would have, I wouldn't have any trouble like Abraham did. I wouldn't have done that. Or I'd, my faith would have been strong in that boat. Boy, they would have, you know, I would have trusted Jesus. But the reality is, folks, we all tend to do this. It, it doesn't take much for us to, to fear and for that fear to, to grab hold of that genuine faith and pull it in and, and for us to react and, and just slip right back into the way we are our sinful thoughts and patterns. So we need to know this right up front. We need to keep in mind when we're examining our heart. There's a couple of things. And just by way of application, we need to prepare ourselves of what we're going to see. So when we're examining our heart, looking for genuine faith, just be prepared. Just know. Just know there's going to be there's going to be sin, sinful thoughts, sinful thinking, uh, sinful attitudes. And you're going to be surprised. You're going to be shocked and say, say, why is that? And I trust God. Number two, another thing that we need to keep in mind is this needs to prevent us from being discouraged. Because we look at these giants and pillars in the faith and, and we can think, man, my faith is never going to be like that. This prevents us to, from being discouraged and, and, and bringing despair upon our life when we, when we sin. But, in contrast, we need to think about this too. Thirdly, this is no excuse for laziness in the Christian life. This is no excuse for, for just being idle and not being vigilant. We can't just point to Abraham and say, oh, well, Abraham sinned. That gives me a good excuse. Or David did this. I mean, he murdered a person. So, well, I can just do whatever I want to do. No, that's foolish thinking. And we dare not confuse. We dare not confuse the line between belief and and unbelief. Because there's still a distinction in Scripture that is made. It's a clear line of distinction. A strong distinction. It's like oil and water. It's like light and darkness. It's like life and death. Clear distinction. So don't, don't let this be confusion. See, well, what's the difference? Well, one is a 
habit of your life. When the other is a one-time thing. This is not the pattern for Abraham. This is a falling, yes. This is a sin, yes. But the direction of his life is faith in God. Another thing we need to learn is that we just need to prepare ourselves for our, looking at our own heart, but also prepare yourself for looking at your neighbor's heart. You know, we need to be gracious with each other. You need to be gracious with your pastor. You say, well, his, his faith is pretty shaky. Yeah. Yeah. So is yours. So is Abraham's. We need to be gracious with each other. The Bible says for us to, even when we're addressing that sinfulness, to be gentle because we know our own heart. We know our own heart. And to know genuine, true, saving faith in spite of our genuine saving faith, in spite of what we know, Satan is there always to accuse us, isn't he? He's always there. There's always doubts. There's always fears that that creep up. It's like a muscle. Faith is like a muscle that needs to be exercised. It it needs to be constantly moving. It needs to be constantly being tested and and tried. It's like that baby walking across the room. He needs to keep practicing. Keep practicing. Get up. He falls. He gets up. And and he, he keeps practicing. Building those leg muscles. So Abraham sinned. Abraham sinned. Wavering faith is a sin against God. It's devastating. It's still, it's a sin. Number two, look at this. God's intervention. And what we see is wavering faith is, is overseen by God. Look in verse three. I love these first two words. But God. <laughs> but Abraham's sin What's going to happen? Devastation. The, the flood gates have been open, but God, God intervenes, but God came to Abimelech. Now that's the king, king of Gar, in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her. There would have been a process here. This would have been typical for the kings in the ancient world. They would have seen a, a, a woman that they would want, maybe from even a powerful man, so that they can make an alliance there. Bring her in into his harem. And there she would have been prepared how to address the king, what to do and what to wear and what not to do, that kind of thing. And it would have been a time frame before she would even brought in, be brought into the presence of the king. Then he said... This is Abimelech's response. Lord, will you kill a nation even though righteous? Did he himself, this is Abraham, did he himself uh, say to me, she is my sister and she herself also say he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hand, I have done this. Now watch the Lord's response here. Then God said to him in the dream, Indeed, I know that in the integrity of your heart, you have done this. And, and I love this part, and I also held you back from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Notice God's work 
And man's responsibility, but God's working. This is the providence of God. He was working in that situation. We see all of these things coming together that God was overseeing what was going on. I love that. I love that because I want that in my life. He says, I I did not allow you to touch her. And here's the instruction, verse 7. So now return the man's wife for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die. You and all of yours. Let's stop right there for a second. We see God's oversight in this, in this thing. And I'm so glad that God does that. We, we see God's intervention says, but God, God is completely aware of what Abraham is doing. And I'm so thankful for that, that God is involved in the affairs of, of men. And he did not allow things to get any worse than they uh, did. And in fact, they could have been a lot worse, right? But God, God was overseeing this like a good shepherd. Notice what Abimelech says. I just want to bring attention to this. Abimelech claims innocent. Now, he was innocent, it seems like, from our perspective. He says that, he said, he himself told me. She is my sister. She herself said that he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hand. He says, I'm righteous. I, I didn't do anything. But you know what? Before God, he was still guilty. He was, he was going to die. Death was on the line. God was overseeing this thing. We need to, we need to kind of remember something here. That God's standards apply. We are not the arbiter of right and wrong. It's not, it's not just judging things by our own heart, like King Abimelech was thinking. Oh, I, the, my conscience didn't convict me, so I must be right. No, no, no. You're wrong. And you're still guilty before me. That's what God is saying. We need to keep that in mind because God's standards are outside of us. I, I think we, have a, we live in a world that, that just seems like the standard is themselves, their own conscience. And as long as they're not convicted, then they're okay. But that's, that's just far from the truth. We... Uh, used to watch this, um, I don't even remember the name of it, but uh, the, the little theme song before this, uh, this one-hour episode says, just the good old boys, right? Never meaning no harm. Now, you, you could probably tell me what the thing of that is. But it, even as a kid, I, I understood that. Never meaning no harm. Just, just because their hearts were innocent because they their intent was to do good their intent was okay doesn't mean they didn't mean they were sinless and that's what we see with Abimelech he was still held up by God's holy standard here's the standard Abimelech and here's what you're doing you're still guilty before me still guilty before me so God intervenes um God intervenes and I'm so thankful for that. The, um, the third thing here, 
as we see as Abraham's embarrassment, Abraham's shame. And it's just a reminder to us that our wavering faith, wavering faith is an embarrassment to God's people. Wavering faith is an embarrassment to God's people. Look at verse 8. And Abimelech rose arose early in the morning. So this, this guy is motivated, right? He's eager early in the morning. And he calls for his servants and tells all of these things in their hearing. And the men were greatly afraid. They understood the gravity of the situation. They were highly motivated to make some action, to make sure this is... This is uh, corrected. They understood how serious this was, that death was on the line. And then he calls Abraham in verse 9. Abimelech calls Abraham and asks, and there's four questions here, and I want to read these things, but I I want to kind of explain them into modern-day terms. What have you done? First question, what have you done to us? (laughs) What have you done to us? Blaming Abraham, Abraham's obviously the blame here. But he's saying, do you understand the seriousness of what you've done? We're going to be killed here. Second question. And how have you, how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You, you have done this. And, and what did I ever do to you? That's the way we would say it. What did I ever do to you that you would hate me so much that you would condemn me to death? That's what he's saying. And this third little phrase, I love this. It says, you have done to me things that ought not to be done. No one deserves this treatment. Number four, verse 10, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what have you seen? That you have done, that you have done this thing. In your evaluation of, of my kingdom and me, what have you seen that's, that's condemning me to death? What, what have you seen that, that would judge me in your eyes? And in summary, how do you justify your actions, Abraham? How do you justify this? You're condemning me to death. Why did you do this thing to me? Now, Abraham probably was not expecting this, I would, I would think. Probably not expecting this. I just want you to, to see how inverted this thing is, how completely turned backwards this is. Abraham, who is the man of God, he's the one that knows God. He was the righteous one, and he's being schooled by a, a secular king. And he's, he's being reamed out, if you will, by a... A king that does not know God. And I think that's amazing how much righteousness this king knows. He, he seems to know right from wrong. And he, he seems to know what's just and what's unjust. He seems to know sin. And he's, he obviously sees the, the danger of what he has done. And he's talking about the integrity of his heart. That's interesting. And here you have the man of God who's the one's doubting, who's the one that's lying And Abraham was the righteous man being corrected by the unsaved, ungodly king. This is shame. (laughs) This is shame. Abraham is is taking his lumps. He is embarrassed. And and make no mistake, this is a very public thing. (laughs) They may have tried to make it in private, 
but there's enough servants around. This, this is a very, very public thing. Now, sometimes God corrects us in, in the privacy of our own heart. Sometimes he does that, and, and I like that. <laughs> sometimes he does it out in public. But you, you know what? Every time, though, every time, our faith is a, a very public thing, and, and God could call us out publicly every, every time. Abraham's faith is connected to the God that he claims to worship, making this a very public affair. Because we are living out our love for God. We're living out our faith for God to a watching world. The world is watching us and saying, okay, what makes them different and what makes us different is our faith. And it's a very, very public thing. And folks, we are created, we are His workmanship to be on display. Whatever God does in our life is a very public thing. There is no place for privacy. There's no place where, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to live my life. Put it under a bushel. No, there's no place for that. And Abraham's very much shamed now. Folks, when we take on the name of Christ, it's a very sobering thing. When we, when we lie, when we sin against, when we have wavering faith and, and cause this name of God to be shaky, it's, it's an offense to God. But God is using this in Abraham's heart, isn't it? He's using this. God knows how to mold us. He knows how to grow us. He, he knows how to break us, doesn't He? And this is a very public thing, and I think it probably humiliated, humiliated Abraham. Very public. His life was just on display. And we have to be very, very careful when you take on the name of Christ. When you take on the name of God. When you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You claim to have faith in God. The one true and living God. We have to be very careful to take on His name. Number four. We see Abraham's rationale. Why did Abraham do what he did? What, what was motivation behind this? Well, we see wavering faith tends to revert back to old habits. That's what I said at the beginning. Look in verse 11. And Abraham said, there's three things that he blames this on, that he, he says, his rationale, his motivation for doing this. He said, I, I did this because I said, surely there is no fear of God in this place. Now, maybe he's comparing it to Sodom. Maybe he's thinking through and comparing it to, uh, to what he knows, these wicked cities and the, the the vices that they have. That's the fear of man. That's the fear of man. Afraid. No faith. Number two. He says that they. Um, back in verse. Uh, Ten. He says. Um, I'm sorry. Verse verse eleven. No fear of God in this place. That they may kill me. Then he's afraid of, of death. Afraid of death. Um, we all have to face the fact. Fear man, fear death. We all have to face the fact that, folks, we will die someday. We we all are going to die. We need to face that fact. We need to settle that in our minds. Abraham needed to do that. Number two, the other thing we need to note about this is God is in charge of that. God determines when we die. You just see no faith here. No faith. Number three. And you see this 
in verse 12, besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So it's a stepsister situation. So, so technically, I didn't lie. That's just getting around it, isn't it? That's, that's the attempt to deceive. And that's what he was doing. Attempting to deceive. But, but again, it just shows weak faith. Shaky faith. And that attempt to deceive is just as much a, a lie. And that's what happened. That's what got him into trouble. And his sin was exposed. It's uncovered by this wayward faith. This wayward faith caused him to, to sin against God. And Abraham is saying in his heart, God cannot take care of me because of my beautiful wife. Now, men, that's a great line. It's a good line to use to your wife. You know, man is, you are so beautiful that the guys are going to kill me just to get to you. That's a great line. But it also shows weak faith, a lack of faith in God, doesn't it? And there's, there's certain weaknesses that we gravitate toward. And Abraham's weakness was this very thing. Fear. Fear of man. Fear of dying. And so he concocts this lie. He's going right back to habits of, of thinking. That's just his go-to sin, if you will. And this is why we don't just put off sin. Sometimes you just think, well, just stop doing this. Well, no, no. You have to renew your mind, don't we? We have to start thinking differently or we will go back. We put off our sin, renew our mind, and then put on the new sin. That's the habit of the Christian life. That's what we, that's what we do. Now, this is forcing Abraham, and I, what we need to learn here is this is forcing Abraham to look at his own heart. And to articulate what is going on inside. It's forcing him. The, the, the questions from this ungodly king is forcing him to, to examine his own heart. And when he examines his own heart, he realizes, I'm just sinful. I'm just afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Not trusting God. And that's what's exposed here. That's what's exposed. You know, the word confess in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. If we confess our sins... It just means saying the same thing about our sins that God sees about our sins. God says about our sins. Just seeing the same thing. And because that's what we do. We have to confess our sin. We see the same thing. We see it as God sees it and then turn from that. So we see Abraham's rationale, why he did. Number five, we see Abimelech's reparation. Abimelech's reparation here in verse 14. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham and returned his wife Sarah to him. Now that's the key, right? That's the major thing. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever is good in your sight. And to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given you, given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication. Before all who is with you, and before all, you are cleared. Now, here's the principle. God knows how to graciously protect us in, in our wavering faith. 
God is overseeing this thing. And he is protecting Abraham in this waver. He didn't protect Abraham from the wavering faith. He protected Abraham in the wavering faith. Making sure that Abraham didn't go any further. And so Abimelech, he, he, he wants to restore this relationship. He wants to, to give reparations. The key is that he, we see God's protection here that Sarah was returned. You remember back in Genesis chapter 12 that Abraham was chosen by God? So was Sarah. She was just as chosen. Not the handmaiden, not anyone else. She was chosen by God. And now she's vindicated. hundred pieces of silver. He never touched her. Never came near to her. So there's no contamination of, of the, un, the godly line that is there. Her name is cleared. God was protecting her. This is the messianic line here. This is the line in which Jesus is going to come. This is through the, the people that Jesus was going to come through. And it was protected. And then, then we see God's protection. But we also see God's grace in that Abimelech gave sheep and oxen and settled. And uh, you, you can settle wherever you want to settle. And he gave a thousand pieces of silver. There's reparation there. And God spared Sarah. God was out, uh, Sarah was outside of the protection of her own husband. And Abraham made a stupid decision here. And God steps in. And God was good and God was gracious. She was at risk. She was in danger. And Abraham was just probably just oblivious to this thing. He seems to be because he's, he's comfortable in his own sinfulness and he's oblivious to this, but God just steps in. You know what? God can turn around the, the, the worst of situations. It's amazing. Know that in your own life, that God can turn around. God can take something that's bad, situations, and He intervenes. And He displays His grace and turns out, can be, it turns out it can be so, so good, such a blessing. In spite of the shame. And He corrects Abraham here. And you know what? God does this thing, this kind of thing on a daily basis, at least in my life. He corrects the, the sinful, stupid words that I say that people should take offense, but maybe they don't. They're gracious to me. He corrects my attitude as I, I go along. He, he corrects. He's constantly involved in our life, isn't he? And I'm so glad of that. So glad of that. Folks, the answer to wavering faith like this is to look to God. He, he is a powerful God. And I want to read just a verse that is just familiar to you, I know. In Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that you ask or understand, according to the power that works within us. God's power is working within us. That's an amazing thought to me. Then we see Abraham's restoration here. Abraham's restoration. His wavering faith. Here's the principle. Wavering faith will always be restored. It's a restoring kind of faith. Even the, the, the faith that seems like it's unbelieving faith, it, it will always be restored. We see this in verse 17. And 
Abraham prayed to God. Now, remember, Abraham was a rightfully, he was a prophet. He mentioned that early, early on. He prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants so that they bore children. For Yahweh had utterly shut up or shut all of the wounds of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And we see just the restoration of Abimelech. His life is restored. His health is restored. His kingdom is restored. We see that God restores uh, Sarah to her rightful place. This is the woman. This is his wife. And then restores Abraham. Even in his shame. Abraham is a prophet. And a prophet would both receive word from God. But also a prophet would petition God on behalf of other people. And that's what's going on here. And he's healed. The whole city is healed. And it's a, it was a public, very much a public thing. And we see restoration. And that's the key. He does not let us go, folks. Genuine saving faith. That's the, that's the key. God works. Even in the embarrassing, going through the embarrassment of, of all of these things. A righteous man falls seven times, Solomon says. But he gets up. He's restored. He moves on. You know who didn't do that? Judas, did he? He just he just walked away. He went and killed himself. He didn't seek restoration. Did you, did you compare that with Peter? Peter sought that restoration. He wanted to be restored. That's the difference. See, saving faith could walk away at any time. Too embarrassed to go back. Unsaving faith, too embarrassed to go back. Saving faith, restored. Restored, restored, restored. Seven times over. Genuine faith will always be restored. Always, always, always be restored. It may be broken at times. There may be embarrassment. But will always, always go back. It's like a magnet. It's always fun, especially when I was little, I'd take a, a compass and turn that thing around, try to confuse that needle, but it would always come back north. That's just the, the Christian life. The true believer, genuine faith, is always going to be restored. It's always going to come back. And I just remind you of the, the overall principle here. Genuine faith at its core, at its core of who we are, is demonstrated in the direction of our life. Not the perfection of our life, but the direction of our life. And we need to be like David. David says, Lord, expose my heart. If there's any wicked way in me, he says, expose it. Let me know it. Let me see it. So it can be corrected. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Lord, thank you for the confidence that of knowing that you oversee us even in our stupidity, even in our foolish decision, slipping back into old habits, into old thoughts. And Lord, Satan is there as soon as those things happen, just to convict us, to to, to blame us, to accuse us. But Lord, we thank you for your restorative power. Thank you for your work in our life and not letting us go. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.